Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we have kind of a mashup between our current series on the spiritual journey and Advent. So we're looking at some Advent passages, but kind of how they also tie into the spiritual journey. I'm running a little bit behind on posting this because this was over a week ago when I delivered the message. So a couple announcements about this coming weekend. Uh, we're having our Christmas Eve service for the first time on a Sunday morning instead of Sunday evening. So we got some special guest musicians joining us and it's going to be a good time. It's an all ages service. Try to get there early so you get a seat this Sunday in North Shore Vineyard, 1030. Thanks for listening. Uh, the season of Advent, and all around the world today, people who follow the lectionary are, are looking at passages that have to do with John the Baptist, because um, in the Advent season, part of what we do, and Christians have done for centuries around the world, is enter into the story. We, uh, we step into what it means to anticipate and wait for the Messiah. And so it, it's, it's interesting that, that Christmas actually occurs during the darkest part of the year, you know, where the, the, the nights are the longest. And, and actually when, the, when Christ arrives, it's at the turning from the, the darkest, longest nights of the year to the, 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 the days start getting longer. And so in a sense, it is a time of, of finding God in the midst of our darkness, awakening our hope and, and our desires and our longings and anticipation of Christ. Now, we as Christians, it's entering into the Christmas story is a little bit different than um, for the first people because uh, we're looking back on Jesus coming into the world and expecting God's kingdom to come in its fullness, but they, they were just waiting for the Messiah. But there's something really about that waiting and anticipating that is, is really key uh, in, in our faith. And I think if, if any of you celebrated Christmas when you were a kid, you, you know a little something about anticipation, right? Remember what it was like to, to be a couple of weeks away from Christmas when you're like four or five, six years old? And you might as well be like two years away from Christmas, right? Because time just goes so slow. You know, when when you go grow old, it's like, man, at 45, it's like weeks go by like hours now, you know? But when you're a kid and, and you're moving towards Christmas, there is this deep anticipation for what you're going to get. And I remember as a kid... You know, going to the to the Christmas tree in those, those week or so before Christmas and finding a, a gift with with my name on it, and I would shake it to try to figure out is this a Han Solo action figure or a, a set of Legos or or a, maybe this is a remote control car this year or something like that. And you you know, just as a kid, you're you you know about anticipation, you know about longing, you know about engaging your imagination as you hold that present, try to imagine what's inside and. Imagine what it's going to be like to play with that toy in the neighborhood with the other kids on Christmas Day. But something happens when we get older where we just kind of lose that a little bit. I remember 
I may have, I've probably shared this story before, but a very memorable Christmas when I was uh, about four years old, um, I had this wonderful stocking that my granny made for me. And it could hold a whole lot of loot, you know. It was it was big, and it had my name in sequined letters on it. It had all these other, you know, it was handmade stocking. It was really cool. And so it was the night before Christmas. And that stocking was hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas would soon be there. And in the morning, on Christmas morning, you know, my whole life, uh, at least when I was a kid... Christmas morning, the first thing you get to open is the stocking because most parents don't want to get up and, and open presents at 6 o'clock in the morning when, you know, you're awake as a little kid just with anticipation running in there. So I ran in there to uh, get my stocking. And my dad had told me uh, in the weeks before, he says, you know, if you're a bad kid, you're going to get a stocking filled with switches and ashes. And I was like, okay, well, cool. I'm not a bad kid. I got it. So I ran into that room on Christmas morning and excited to, to get my stocking and, and dump it out and eat all the goodies and stuff. And where my stocking had been hung by the chimney with care the night before, there was an old tube sock with holes in it and sticks and ashes. And I began staring up at it with quiver chin, you know. <laughs> While my dad was hiding behind the Christmas tree taking pictures. <laughs> Explains a lot, right? Yeah. Years of therapy later. <laughs> so sometimes anticipation doesn't work out well. <laughs> but that's not, the, uh, that's not the actual point of this message today. Today we're going to be talking about how anticipation is a way of living hope. And how anticipation is not a passive uh, endeavor, but it involves our being. And what better time to look at anticipation and what that means in our life than in, during this Advent season. So the passage this, this morning, there was actually a different passage from the lectionary for this morning, but I'm kind of going with a passage from the midweek. Most churches who follow the lectionary are talking about John the Baptist calling out, prepare the way of the Lord, uh, make, make your hearts ready for the coming of the Messiah. But this one really caught me the other day, and this is Isaiah 11. And I apologize for your bulletins this morning. We, we ordered toner 10 days ago, and it still hadn't come in. So some of you have very spotty uh, bulletins. But if you can't read it, just listen to the smooth voice of Crispin Schroeder. <laughs> Isaiah 11. And this is a prophecy about the Messiah. It says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. 
The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, the infant will play near the cobra's den, and a young child will put forth his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This, this passage starts in a rather bleak place. A shoot shall arise from the root, from the stump of Jesse. The stump of Jesse. When you think of a stump, uh, a stump is something that used to be thriving. Something that has been cut down. A stump speaks of cut off potential. It speaks of something that is not bearing life anymore. It's the last scene of, what's the, the Shel Silverstein book? Uh, What's the one? The giving tree. It's the last scene of that. It's a stump. It's given all that it has. And sometimes that's the way life feels to us. When we look around at the world, when we look at our own personal lives, sometimes we get into a season where it looks desolate. It looks like nothing good can happen. But this passage starts off by saying a shoot will arise. And a shoot, I don't know if you've got any stumps in your backyard that have little shoots that arise from them from time to time. I've got a few. Uh, sweet gum trees, and uh, I try to kill those things as much as I can, and they just, a shoot keeps arising from them. But what is interesting, a shoot is not that spectacular in and of itself. Even a shoot just feels like, okay, a shoot arising from a stump, but this is how God works. What starts with a shoot arising from a stump, by the end of this passage, it is the glory of God covering all the earth. And isn't the way, you know, when we, when we look at the Christmas story, that is the way that this whole thing takes off. You have Mary and Joseph, who are just a teenage couple betrothed to be married, living in an obscure part of the empire. They're not powerful people. They're not movers or shakers or rich or talented. They're just a young couple who is uh, going to give birth to the Messiah. The truth is, most people looking from the outside wouldn't have seen anything spectacular, anything to think that this is going to, to be something to change the world. And yet, that's often the way God starts. In the, in the place that seems most desolate to us, in the place that seems most caught off, cut off from possibilities of, of goodness and, and flourishing ever happening again, God brings forth a shoot. Now, this shoot is a, a picture of the Messiah and Isaiah goes on to talk about what the Messiah is going to be like. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. You know, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican in here today or an Independent, I think we can all agree that we'd like to see more leaders who are wise. Or just a few. How about that? <laughs> We, we would love to just see a, a handful of congressmen and people that, that were just wise and understanding and had a spirit of counsel, like, could actually, like, when, when people are like that are in power, like, it's good for the world. <laughs> and we can all agree that, that we need more of that. But there's one last aspect. He says that the Messiah will not only have the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might, but he'll also have the spirit of the knowledge 
in fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. I was reading a book this week that uh, I hadn't read in a while, but uh, by Eugene Peterson called uh, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. And Eugene Peterson has some really great thoughts on this expression, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord occurs all the time in the book of Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah. Mainly, those are the books that, that you see the term. But we often kind of think of the fear of the Lord as we take the word fear, which is usually a bad thing, and we combine it with Lord. And we kind of get this idea like we're supposed to be afraid of God, like insecure, scared. And, and, and particularly if you've grown up in a household where maybe you were scared of your dad or your mom, it's, it's, that might be an easy thing to project onto God. But Eugene Peterson talks about how really this is a compound phrase in, in Hebrew. And what it really means is akin to that feeling that you get when you hold a baby for the first time. Like Ricky, did you got to hold the baby? They let you? Ricky's a new grandpa, by the way. Um, when you hold a... I, I was sharing about holding my daughter uh, after she was born. You know, the, not, not the first time, but a couple weeks later. When I had a, a transcendent experience. And there's, there's that moment where you're, you're holding this, this newborn life. And it, it's, it's so stinking amazing that here's this, this other person that's somehow related to you, and you get overwhelmed with a sense of awe and wonder. It's a similar feeling that maybe you feel like when you hear an orchestra at a symphony, or maybe Leonard Skinner or something for some of you, or when you're standing on a mountain or looking at a sunset, that feeling of awe that it's a holy moment. That's kind of like what the fear of the Lord is. It's not, it's not I'm scared of God and I got to go run and hide. It is I'm aware of something immeasurably transcendent in this moment. And this is one of the key things about the Messiah. Not only is he going to be wise and understanding and have counsel, but he is going to walk in the world as if God is at work and open to that. And that's what it means to live in the fear of the Lord is that, that we are actually walking around paying attention to God, treating this world as if it is a holy place and treating other people as if they're holy, even if they don't believe in God. We're treating them as they're created in God's image. It is walking with reverence. And Isaiah goes on to talk about what kind of judge he will be. And he says, he will not judge by what he sees or what he hears. He's not going to judge by the externals. He's going to judge by looking at the heart. And this is good news for the poor because he's going to judge on their behalf. And this is the gospel in this section of, of Isaiah. For all who are weak and weary and poor and being exploited by the powerful and the rich and and and." and you know, the movers and shakers of this world, the ones who feel like they don't have a voice, this passage says God sees you and God will vindicate you. But the interesting part that I want to kind of focus in on today is in verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. And so on. Now, I, we, we were talking about this at teaching team the other day at our meeting. And I think most of us have, have 
on the teaching team, when we've heard of this verse, we, it's, it's been a very literal interpretation that someday when God brings his kingdom to, to, to fullness, we're actually going to see actual cows hanging out with actual bears and actual wolves hanging out with actual sheep. Maybe, maybe that is how this whole thing's going to wrap up. But I think the, the greater meaning is actually a metaphorical meaning here. It's an analogy that those who have been in an adversarial relationship will be reconciled. Victims with their oppressors. Those who have, have been hurt will be reconciled with the ones that have hurt them. You know, I spent much of my life in, in very uh, charismatic expressions of the church and I'm very grateful for that. But oftentimes, I mean, even in the vineyard, when we talk about the kingdom of God, signs of the kingdom of God coming, you know, oftentimes in, in charismatic circles, the, the biggest indication that God is showing up is, is somebody getting healed. And I would agree. I mean, if somebody gets healed, that's, that's God showing up. But you know, one of the greatest signs of God showing up is actually reconciliation. When you see people that are estranged from one another be reconciled and come back together, make amends. That's a miraculous thing. And some of you know what I'm talking about. It'd be a lot easier to get a a physical healing. That'd be great. And I've seen a lot of, you know, I've seen people get healed before. That's great. But oftentimes, a much greater miracle is not physical healing, but the kind of healing that can come when relationships are restored. And that's a sign of the inbreaking of God's kingdom. And this is what I want to look at today. Because to anticipate the coming of the Messiah is not simply just waiting around. You know, we ever hear that phrase, I'm waiting on God. I think oftentimes we think of waiting on God like, I'm just going to sit here and wait for God to do something. You know, God's, God's in charge. I'm just going to wait for him to do something. I kind of, I guess since I spent about four or five years in the restaurant industry uh, back in my younger days, I, I kind of think of waiting on God like waiting on tables. <laughs> it's not a passive thing. I'm not just sitting here waiting. When you're waiting on a table, what are you doing? You are trying to anticipate the needs of the people that you're serving. You know, it's, it's about bringing them food, but you're, you're, you're at their pleasure. You're trying to help them experience something good. And so everything that you do, there may be times where you're standing around, but then you're always trying to pay attention to anticipate what they may need or what they may want. And if you're a good waiter, you don't ask them how things are going when their mouth's full. (laughs) Which is, always seems to happen to me. Like, how do you like it? (laughs) So waiting on God, anticipating God is not a matter of doing nothing. It is actually beginning to participate with the moving of the Spirit in preparing our hearts and making things right so we can welcome the reign of God. And I think one of the greatest ways that we can anticipate the rule of God is pursuing reconciliation. 1 Corinthians 5, 16 through 19, the Apostle Paul writes, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. 
Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Paul is saying that, that one, of the, one of the things we're called to do by God, our ministry, if you are a follower of Jesus, your ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. First, you're reconciled to God. It's responding to that, that, that in Christ we've been reconciled to God. But ultimately, this is never just about you and God. Richard Rohr has a wonderful book called Breathing Underwater, and he writes this. He says, liberals and sophisticated groups are usually trapped in current social correctness and just keep affirming people's selfishness. It's classic enabling and codependence with too much false horizontal affirmation and almost no vertical truth speaking. Most fundamentalist and conservative groups, on the other hand, just threaten people with God's harsh judgment and their own, but do not normally teach people how to heal or how to make amends or how to let go in practical, emotional, and mental ways. But Jesus, uh, and, and along that, it says Jesus has forgiven it so we can just forget about it. This is far too vertical with almost no horizontal dimension. Their guilt problem was solved, and that is all that matters. It is a self-serving concern to alleviate just your own guilt. It is a loving question to say, how can I free others from theirs? What Richard Rohr is getting at is sometimes liberal circles, we just, you know, if, the, the liberal extreme tends to just excuse sin or enable people to keep on sinning. You know, God loves you, it's, it's grace and all that. Where on the conservative side, it's like, all concerned with, with oneself and alleviating one's own guilt. But, but neither, both sides of that, you can fall into an error. The thing that we're going, and, the, and, and that's why today is kind of a combination between Advent and a spiritual journey message like we've been talking about the last few weeks. Where God is going with this thing is not only that we would be reconciled to God and deal with our own guilt, but that we would actually move to a place of caring about other people. And along these lines, I think one of the things that I've found that, that it offers some great wisdom on this actually comes from the 12 steps. If you look at the 12 steps that are used in AA and Celebrate Recovery, the 12 steps, the first seven have to do with kind of yourself, getting things right internally. It's admitting that you're powerless over certain compulsive behaviors in your life. It's admitting that you need a higher power in your life. It's, a, it, it, it's facing some of the darkness in your own soul and trying to deal with these internal things. But when you get to step number eight, all of a sudden things begin to move to focusing on how your actions have actually affected other people in a negative way and beginning to own that. So I want to read a couple of things from the 12 steps. Step eight, made a list of all the persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. That's scary, isn't it? 
I think probably like the spiritual journey. I don't know. There's a lot of people. I've said this over the last few weeks. A lot of people don't make it beyond stage three of the spiritual journey. You know, they, they get saved. They get discipled. They start serving in church, and they never go on into the inward journey or the outward journey. I would suspect in the 12 steps, there's a lot of people who make it through the first seven steps and don't go on. I don't know. But I, I, I suspect that <laughs> because it's one thing to deal with your own stuff but to actually face how you have hurt other people with your actions, whether on purpose, you know, out of your own jealousy, insecurity, pride, arrogance, or just maybe when you had a good motive and you just did something that hurt somebody anyway, it is hard to face that. Step eight says that we made a list of all the persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. That's a good place to start. Step nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So it's not just a matter of sitting down and coming up with all the people that we've hurt, but actually being willing to take the next step to say, God, I want to go make amends with these people that I've, that I've hurt. I want to try to set things right. The key point here, though, is when it won't do more harm. <laughs> so um, there's certain situations I would not recommend trying to make amends. If you're going to bring to light some piece of information that may destroy somebody's life by confessing your sin, probably better just to keep that to yourself. <laughs> And whether you follow the 12 steps or whether you have gone through kind of some of these stages of the spiritual journey, I, I, I think everyone who makes progress in their spiritual journey is going to bump into this dynamic at some point. I remember several years ago when I was living in Kenner, I'd actually spent probably about a year really doing some soul searching, working on the internal journey in a big way because I, I was just beginning to come to terms with the fact that there were so many things beneath the surface of my life that I had never been consciously aware of that were, were controlling my work ethic, how I related to other people, how I related to God, and it was taking its toll on my very health. And I realized, like, I had to do something. So I'm, I'm, I'm starting to deal with stuff on the inside. I'm going to counseling here and there. Getting around some other people, I was actually started to work with the Celebrate Recovery Group a little bit on the South Shore at the time. And in the process of going through the internal journey, the inward journey, God began to bring some stuff to mind about people that I had hurt. And I hadn't thought about these things. You know, that's, that's kind of the thing. Sometimes you don't even really realize. And then the conviction of the Holy Spirit shows up, and God began to remind me of a situation with a friend of mine and he wouldn't let up you know ever have one of those situations that just keeps coming back in your mind and this went on for a few weeks and finally I was like I just need to call this person up and try to make amends we weren't estranged but there was something that I had done to this this friend of mine we were close friends and God began to reveal to me how my own pride my own ego my own wanting to, you know, take over something actually became a, a wedge in our friendship. And so I called this friend up, and we went out to breakfast one day. And 
a few years earlier, we had been involved on a creative project together, actually a few projects, and because of my own ego and my own pride, instead of letting him kind of spearhead the thing as the most gifted person, I took it over and did it myself, most of it. And I, I, I had to just sit down with him. I said, you know, it was just my own pride that stepped in and took over a lot of that stuff. And it's a shame because what we produced, we were, we were actually working on some um, CDs together, some, some albums. And I said, it's a shame because the albums that came out were good, but they're not nearly as good as they would have been if I would have let you take the lead on this. It wasn't something I wanted to admit to at all. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a beautiful moment to just release him from that. And I just had to tell him, I was like, you know, you were the better person for the job. You had more giftings there. I learned some stuff from you, but not what I could have if I wouldn't have let my stinking ego get in the way. And I just wanted—I just told him I was like, I just—I appreciate you, and I just wanted to let you know that. No expectations, and and this is the thing about making amends. When you make amends, it has nothing to do with assuaging your own guilt. Understand that you're not. If you think it's about you, then don't do it. If you're just trying to go talk to somebody because you want to feel better, then you're not at the right place to do it. It's not about you. Making amends can never be about you feeling better. It is always about caring about the other person. It is after you have experienced the transformation of God's love and forgiveness within that you begin to care about other people and say, I'm willing to put down my own pride. I'm willing to own up to my stuff so that this other person can experience healing. This other person can experience life. To make amends with someone we have wronged requires becoming conscious of what we've done that has been destructive or harmful to another. It is an act that values the other without preconditions of how the other must respond. I will own what I have done. I will admit how my actions, regardless of whether or not they may have been from a good motive or not, brought pain and suffering to another person. And this is a key part to making amends. You know, when I shared that with my friend a few years ago, or many years ago now, um, I couldn't go in there with the expectation that, you know, I, I want him to receive it a certain way. Because that's not making amends either. You've got to relinquish your control, your expectations. You're simply going in to bring freedom and love and care to this other person that your actions have caused harm. That's all. And if they reject it, they reject it. If they don't receive it the way that you want, that's fine. If they don't want to hang out with you, know, you can't put that pressure on it to truly make amends. may direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And then step 10 follows from that. Continue to take a personal inventory and when we were wrong to promptly admit it. Steps 8, 9, and 10 of the 12 steps are, are, are fantastic steps. The first part of it, though, the step 8, 
to, to actually sit down and use your mind to remember, to invite the Holy Spirit to, to remind you of the people you've wronged, that's a painful thing. But I'm telling you, as good as it's going to be for the other person that you try to make amends with, it will bring freedom and healing to yourself in the process. Because it is a way of not denying the damage, the sins that we have participated in, but recognizing them along with the compassion and grace of God's Spirit moving alongside us. And this is where we get to the title of this message today. This is what it means to live hope. Because as we are willing to own our own stuff, our own wrongs, the way that we've hurt people, whether we meant to or not, as we are willing to make amends, we are participating with the Spirit in anticipation of God's return. We are actually bringing hope to the world through our own actions. I encourage you this week. Last week I gave you the little the exercise of loving yourself, looking at yourself as an outsider and asking yourself, what is what does this person need? What does caring for myself look like? Well, well, your exercise this week is to invite the Holy Spirit to bring to mind, to bring to your conscious awareness any relationships where you need to make amends and be willing to go down that road. And I'm not saying you got to make amends with people before Christmas, but what better Christmas present might you be able to give somebody (laughs) than the gift of making amends? But I want to say this, making amends, it's nothing to rush into. I say just invite the Holy Spirit to reveal the people in your life you may have hurt, and be willing to go down this journey of step eight, step nine, step ten. And if you need somebody to walk with you, there's people in this church that would be willing to do this. If you're a guy, show up at Celebrate Recovery on Thursday night. You're going to find some guys in there that are doing this stuff week to week that will be willing to walk with you and help you go through that process. If you're a woman in this church, we can hook you up with some ladies as well. Right, Dina? Dina volunteered? No, just kidding. Uh, we got... <laughs> i got to make amends now. I'm sorry, babe. <laughs> if you need people to help you in this journey of, of seeking to, to, to reconcile with others, we'll find some people to help you walk through that process. But at least be open and willing to invite the Spirit to, to bring light into that. Because this is where the hope of the kingdom of God comes in. Why don't y'all stand? Holy Spirit, we invite you into the darkness of our hearts, Lord, into the places that we are not aware, into the places that we don't even want to look, God. But Lord, we we ask like the psalmist said, search us, know our hearts, try us, know what's inside of us, see if there is any wicked way within, and lead us 
in your path, Lord. Christ, we ask you to illuminate our hearts. Lord, if there are um, people that we have harmed, whether intentionally or unintentionally, God, we ask that in the coming days you would bring those relationships back up into our conscious awareness, Lord. And God, that you would give us the courage to do the hard work of reconciliation. Lord, that we could experience your freedom within our hearts personally, and we could be the ones who show care and love to the ones that we have hurt. Give us wisdom, give us understanding, and give us grace to do this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you need any, any prayer, feel free to come up here to the front. We'll gather some folks around to pray with you. Otherwise, maybe we'll see some of y'all at Ponch Train Nursing Home. You go grab some lunch, come sing some Christmas songs, bring some, some light uh, to some people that are there. Um, we'll meet there for 1 o'clock today, and uh, see you later.
Yeah. 